This message by Jake Simmons was recorded during a Sunday celebration service for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Jake serves as a pastor on staff at Cornerstone Church. Good morning. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Philippians. We're going to be continuing our series that we're going through Philippians this morning. We're going to be in chapter 2. Last week, our friend Tony Carter gave us a wonderful overview of this book and gave us some things to look forward to in the chapters and verses that are to come, but I am very excited and looking forward to us diving back into where we are, and partly the reason for this is because we're about to read a text that some have considered to be a hymn, some have considered to be, um, if, if anything, a poem to the least, but we're going to be able to enter into and learn about how our Savior thinks, how the mind of Christ is. And so I want to begin this morning by setting the context. So we're going to read, begin reading in verse 3 of chapter 2, and we're going to work our way through verse 11. So please join me as I have the privilege of reading God's word to us this morning. Beginning in verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen? Amen. A Navy SEAL during an interview was asked this question. What kind of a person makes it through BUDS? BUDS is the special training program for Navy SEALs, and the Navy SEAL, he replied with the following. He says, "I, I can't tell you the kind of person that makes it through BUDS, but I can tell you the kind of person that doesn't. I can tell you the, the guys that come in with bulging muscles, they don't make it. He said the preening leaders who just delegate all their responsibilities, no, none of those guys make it through. He said the star college athletes who have never been pushed to the core of their being, no, they don't make it through either. He said some of the guys who make it through, they're skinny and scrawny. Some of the guys who make it through, You see them shivering out of fear. He says, but all of the guys who make it through, when they're physically exhausted, 
when they're emotionally exhausted, when they have nothing left to give, somehow, in some way, they're able to dig down deep inside of them and find the energy to help the guy next to them. Those are the guys who become seals. Some of our most elite warriors on the planet are not necessarily the strongest. They're not necessarily the smartest. They're not necessarily the fittest, but they are most capable of taking care of each other, to looking to one another's interests. In the midst of the bullets flying at them, the enemy charging their way, things looking bleak, these seals do not retreat, but they stop to care for their fellow soldier. They look to their interests. In a similar way, Paul is answering the question for this little church plant this morning for us. The question they have is, Paul, how are we going to make it? How are we going to make it? In the face of the opposition and suffering that they are facing, how are we going to make it? How are we going to withstand all the pressure that we're facing as a church. Recall in Philippians 1, 29-30, Paul says this, For this church, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but you should also suffer for His sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So this, there is this external pressure this, this pressure from the outside of this church that is just causing this church to feel and buckle and question what is happening. And it's beginning to form cracks. It's beginning to form divisions. You can think of a, cra- of a, of a nut. You put it into a nutcracker and you begin to put that pressure on that nut. Slowly what you begin to see is these cracks begin to form and this church this, this, this church made up of many different people that we've heard their testimonies about. This church is now experiencing this pressure and the temptation that they're going to experience is division. And so Paul is wanting to help them and to remind them that what they want is they want to be united. They don't need to be divided, but they need to be united. And so what Paul tells them, what they're going to have to do to make it as a church is that they're not only going to have to be united, but he's he's going to tell them about how this unity will happen. This unity will happen through humility. As he told us, as he told them in verses 2, or in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, they're going to have to be of the same mind. They're going to have to be of the same love. They're going to have to be of the same spirit and not look to their own interest, but to the interest of God others. And so Paul, he's worked his way up to this point, encouraging them in this, but, but now anticipating their question, anticipating that, hey, how does this actually look? What, what does this look like for me to consider others more significant than myself? What does it look like to look to, to, other, to another's interest? Well, Paul gives us the perfect illustration. Paul gives this church the only illustration that really matters. Paul 
He does not give them a 10-step program toward unity. He does not tell them to look within like the seals and to dig down deep and try to think of others in your own. No, he says, here's what, here's what you need to see. Here's where your focus needs to be on, and that is Jesus Christ. And so this morning, what Paul lays before us is the kindling to light a fire for unity through humility, through looking at and studying and remembering who Jesus Christ is and what he has done. The goal this morning is to not look within ourselves, to look within ourselves to fight for unity, unity, but to look to Christ and to his example. He's wanting to remind them in the midst of this call to humility, to look to the interest of others, to remember that there's only one who made this possible. So if I could capture in a sentence what I think Paul is trying to communicate to us, I would say this. I said, let the glory of Christ's humility be the empowering example of our own humility. Let the glory of Christ's humility be the empowering example for our own humility. So Paul not only commands this church to pursue humility, but to set their minds on the one who was perfectly and gloriously humble. He reminds them of why they are a church. He reminds them of the one who made all these things possible. And so he gives them not only the one who empowers them, but the one that they can shape their lives as a church after. Now there is no way that we're going to be able to cover and dive into all the truths in this text, I commend wonderful resources about the person and work of Jesus Christ in our bookstore. Stephen Wellam, if you see his name and you see Jesus Christ, buy the book and read it because you will be encouraged and helped in understanding an incredible topic which I commend to your study. But this morning, we are going to study the humility of our Savior. And, and, and this is not only a moment for us to set our eyes on Christ, but Jesus, what he's doing, he is, he is inviting us to lose our life within his and follow in his example. And so as we look to him, there's this empowering that he gives to us. After the apostles, some have considered Augustine, a fourth century philosopher and theologian, one of the most influential Christians in history. At the core of his theology was that God cannot be glorified unless our hearts find their joy in him. And he was asked the question, what is, what is the most central principle to living a Christian life? And here's what Augustine said. He said, first, humility. Second, humility. Third, humility. And so what we need this morning is humility. And, and what we have, and the good news that we have, is we have the perfectly humble Savior who came not only to be an example, but he came to rescue us and to, to dwell within us and to empower us to be like him. So first, to motivate our own humility, let's look at this. My first point, Christ made himself low, verses six through eight. In these three verses, Paul highlights three defining characteristics of Jesus's humility. First, Christ did not consider his identity as something to be grasped or to exploit. Verse six, 
2, Christ emptied himself, verse 7, and then verse 8, Christ humbled himself. So we'll look at each of these verses and consider Jesus in each of them. So Paul makes the staggering claim that Jesus Christ was in the form of God. I hope that you don't pass over that truth too quickly. It should really cause us to pause and to ponder and to consider. Now, what did the Apostle Paul just say of the Savior? It, he just said that Jesus Christ was in the form of God. The invisible God, the God whom no eye has seen, the one in whose glory we are unable to stand, the one who says that he dwells in unapproachable light, the one that we have heard that no eye has seen, the one that whose glory fills his presence. This is the one that Jesus took the form of God. Paul is saying here, to see God, all we have to do is look to Jesus. Isn't that staggering? Jesus did not simply borrow some of God's characteristics. Jesus did not, as if God at some point before coming, decided to transfer a little bit of his godness to Jesus. Okay, Jesus, you ready to go here? Let me give you a little bit of my godness. Now go on. No. From eternity past, Jesus has been and always will be God. If you don't believe me, listen to what God's word has to say. Colossians 1.15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Hebrews 1.3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. John 1, 1 and 14, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Yes, Paul's main point of emphasis here is not whether Jesus gains equality with God or whether he retains it. He says, he makes clear that Jesus is full, has, shares full equality with God. Jesus is fully God. Instead, Paul is not highlighting just the person of Christ. He's at, he is highlighting Jesus's attitude to his divine status. How did Jesus think about his equality with God, his divine status? Well, Paul says Jesus did not take advantage or exploit his full equality with God. Now, this, this idea that of grasping, he didn't grasp. What does that mean? Well, he didn't exploit it. He didn't use it to his advantage. Have you ever been around someone where you just feel like you're being taken advantage of? You ever been around someone where you feel like, I feel like I am here for your sake. That I'm here to do your bidding. Jesus had every reason to live that way, yet he never did. Whenever people were with Christ, what they felt like is they felt like that they were in good company. That they were with someone who truly cared. They were with someone who knew them better than they knew themselves. They were with someone who was willing not to distance themselves from their problems, but actually enter in and draw nearer and deeper into their problems. This way of thinking would be totally foreign 
to the culture that Paul and Jesus lived in. In the Greco-Roman culture, one would have not only desired a higher status, but have then used that status for selfish gain. Humility was not something that sought to be prized after. If someone came to you and said, oh, you are a very humble man, that would be a put-down. That would be something that then you responded with however else you would want to say. You'd, You'd shoot back with another comment. Well, you're this. You wouldn't say, oh, well, thank you for that. That's very kind of you. No, to be a humble man means that you were lower, that you were lowly, that you were underneath other people. And so for Paul to be prizing and upholding Jesus as this humble man, no, this humility was seen as weak. The desire for power and position and position for people to serve you. That is what was sought after, to climb the corporate ladder, to advance no matter the cost to you or others. That is how this culture thought. What can I gain from this? So this is a good moment for us to consider for ourselves. What do we care about most in our life? Do we care most about ourselves or others? Do we see others as opportunities to serve or as objects that are blocking us from what we want? And we will do whatever is necessary either to go through them or to manipulate and use them in a way that returns gain for us. How do we use, how do we see our positions? How do we see the places that God has placed us? How do we see the responsibilities that God has handed over toward us? Another way to ask the question is, do you see people more as mirrors or as windows? Humble people view other people as God's marvelous image bearers, windows to God's glory. To see a person as a mirror means simply, as I look at you, all I really care about is myself. So matter, no matter where I look, even if I'm looking at you, even if I'm going to serve you, even if I'm going to do things that appear to be for you, at the end of the day, what I'm looking at, what I'm studying, what I'm interested in is myself. It's all about me. It's all about what I can get from you. No matter what it costs you, I want to benefit. And so I'm going to use my position, I'm going to use my power, I'm going to use my authority, I'm going to use my wit and my mind, I'm going to use my skill to manipulate and use you to get what I want. Jesus didn't see his godness as something for himself, but saw it as something to serve others. Jesus used his godness not to have privilege, but to give privilege. Think about that. Think about that. Jesus uses Godness not to have privilege, but give privilege. Jesus came to say that I have, he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came out of this privileged status, out of this, this wonderful, this wonderful position, this wonderful Godness. And he entered our world and he said, no, this isn't going to be about me, but it's going to be about me laying aside my preferences and my, and my desires to serve others. So for the parents, the teachers, the management, the leadership in this church or in your home, political, whatever it may see, do we see those places as opportunities for selfish game or to selflessly give ourselves for the good of others? Do we see our spouses as hindrances to what we want or opportunities to lay aside our preferences and to serve them? Do we see our children as the wonderful gift from God that God has given us that we can care for them and instruct them in the knowledge of the Lord or are they just a pain in our butts? 
teachers, management, wherever you're, if you have a position of influence, if you have the capability of making decisions, what informs those decisions? What informs the way that when you're driving home, the decisions you make that night? Or when you wake up and you're driving to work, what informs those decisions? Is it all about you or is it an opportunity to serve others? This leads, leads us to Paul's next point of Christ. Christ emptied himself in verse 7. We read that Christ, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now, Christ didn't see his divine status as an opportunity to exploit others for himself, but Paul says what he did. He emptied himself. How did he empty himself? By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now, there has been a lot of ink spilled about what does this actually mean? What, what, is, what is Paul trying to communicate here with, what does he mean by Christ emptying? Some have suggested that Christ emptied himself of his deity or divinity. I agree with how D.A. Carson illustrates the wrongness of this point. He says, an animal that waddles like a porcupine, has the quills of a porcupine, and in general has all the attributes of a porcupine, is a porcupine. If you take away all the attributes of a porcupine, whatever you have left, it's not a porcupine. So likewise, if the son is stripped of the attributes of his deity, of his godness, it's difficult to see how he can in any meaningful sense still claim to be divine. So it's not that. So what's going on? Well, Paul, he says that Jesus emptied himself. This is what Tom Schreiner helpfully says. The emptying consisted not in the removal of Christ's deity, but rather in the addition of his humanity. So the stress then is not on the exchanging the form of God in the form of the servant, but on the son manifesting the form of God in the form of a servant. Do you understand that? So, so Jesus emptied himself by showing that he came in the form of God in the form of a servant. So he, it's not about subtraction, but it's actually about addition. Christ emptied himself by adding, by taking on the form of a servant in the likeness of of men. So he displayed the nature of God in the form of a slave. Isn't that staggering? Think about that. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, literally a bondservant, a slave, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus took the form of a servant. Notice Paul uses the same language he used regardless, with regards to Jesus, the form of God. So Jesus, he, he had no rights of his own, but was the property of someone else. That's what happens when you're a bondservant, a slave. He stripped himself of all rights to glory. He poured himself out by taking the nature of a slave, of a servant, becoming a man. So Jesus emptied himself. He says, I'm going to come and I'm going to take on human flesh. I'm going to take on not just humanity, but I'm actually going to come in the form of a servant to lay aside my preferences, to lay aside the authority that I have, and I'm going to be live in obedience, utter and full obedience to his Father. Jesus was fully God and he was fully man. He was all God and all man. Romans 8.3 says this, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. 
by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. So Jesus identified with us completely. He fully embraced the frailty of what it means to be a human. He was hungry. He was thirsty. Luke 2 tells us that he grew in stature and wisdom. Hebrews tells us that he was tempted in every way that we face temptation, but he never once did sin. It wasn't as if Christ's coming, he was kept from all the real temptations of this world, but he fully immersed himself in this world. And so Jesus, he came into this world saying, though, here's what I'm going to be committed to. I'm going to be committed to serving in obedience to my Father. And I'm not going to talk about my rights, but I am going to obey. Self-sacrifice brought Jesus into the world. Isn't that amazing? Self-sacrifice brought Jesus into the world. So is, is self something for you to pour out or to build up? Are we willing to lose status or are, is, are we all about preserving our status? Jesus, he ruled the creation. He upheld it by the word of his power, but he signed up to be a servant. Think about that. Jesus gave up the heavenly glory to enter into the mess of this fallen world. There is nothing below Christ. Christ had reached the top. He'd reached the mountain. There was no, no more that he could gain. He was at the top. He was God he, from eternity past. And he existed with God, the glory of God. All angels worshipped him in his pre-existent form. And, but what did Jesus sign up for? What was Jesus' ambition? What drove Jesus to this world? There was nothing below Christ. He came into this world and was humiliated. He came into this world that he created and he was ignored. People ignored him. People were offended by him. People called him a heretic. People spat upon him. We will never be more humiliated than Christ. We will never be as brought low as Christ. He came from the highest possible level and he became the lowest. Nothing was too low for Christ. So how can we know this? How can we know this? How can we know that, that Jesus, there, there's nothing too low for Christ, that Jesus fully immersed himself into this world and said, I'm willing to obey, I'm willing to submit myself to whatever you call me to, I am here to serve. Well, this is what we see in verse 8. We keep reading, and Paul, he then takes us to the height of Christ's humility, to the depths that Christ went for sinners. Paul points us to the cross. Jesus entered our, into our world voluntarily from eternity past, and he came on a rescue mission. Jesus knew the day that would come to be born in the likeness of men. He'd willingly take on this role, and he did, but he didn't do it for, ours, for his sake, but for ours. And in this obedience, it's not only what informed and shaped his life, but it's what led him to a hill called Calvary. And as 21st century Christians, we have lost the scandal of the cross. The cross was, an, the cross was something that wasn't talked about in the times when Jesus lived. 
It was considered an expletive, profanity. You didn't bring it up in the midst of mixed company. It's not something that you wanted to wear on your shirt. Or There wasn't a gift shop right by Golgotha where they would sell crosses to people as they walked by. It wasn't something that people wanted to brandish before them. It's a symbol, though, that as 21st century Christians, we become very familiar with. But for Paul, when he saw the cross, what he was reminded of was what Christ was willing, the depths he was willing to come and rescue us, to rescue sinners. The people who were crucified were criminals. They were terrorists. They were insurrectionists. They were the most evil in society. So what was Jesus doing on the cross? I mean, even in Jewish belief, the cross was a symbol of God's curse. It was a symbol of his wrath for those who profaned the name of God. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Paul is quoting Deuteronomy 21 there. There was no hope for any man on the cross. The man on the cross had messed up and was getting his due. He had sinned against God. So what what is going on? Well, Jesus humbled himself. He He was on the cross not for his sake, but for our sake. He was on the cross not to bear the sin, his sin, but to bear our sin. He was on the cross not just for the physical pain and torture, but he, on the cross, he bore the righteous wrath of God that our sin deserved. And he humbled himself and he was there because he lived in obedience to his father. So this is the extent for Christ's self-denying servanthood. This is how far God is willing to go to rescue us. This is the humility that he was committed to. This is the humility that Paul is saying for us to look at and to glory in and that will empower us to follow in Christ's example. Walter Hansen says it like this, the first three stanzas do not lift up our eyes to the heavens to see the wonders of creation. They do not even lift up our hearts by showing us wonderful miracles of healing. They take us down, down, down to the deepest, darkest hellhole in human history to see the horrific torture, unspeakable abuse, and bloody execution of a slave on a cross This hymn celebrates the death of a slave on a cross because although he is forever the one existing in the form of God, he is on that cross by his own deliberate choice to empty himself and humble himself for us, for our sake, for our sin. Christ was committed to do this for us. So the question for us is, one, have you trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? Have you called upon Jesus? Do you believe that your greatest problem in this world is not the person sitting next to you, but is the sin that dwells in your heart? And do you believe that this is who Christ is and that he came to rescue you? If you don't, then we, this is what we have to offer you. It's the gospel, the good news of what God has done in sending his son in the likeness of man, to die on the cross and rose again from the dead for our sake. He humbled himself for our sake. So the question for us and those who follow Christ is how far are you willing to stoop? How far are you willing to humble yourselves? 
For us, it's always about getting better, going upward, improving, moving, more status, more money, more, more, more. We don't like the other way. We don't like to descend. We don't like to stoop. We don't like to experience loss. But yet when we study and look at Jesus, what we see is that he was all about giving and losing and sacrificing and stooping and going down, down, down until it cost him his own life. And he did it not for his sake, but for our sake. What we deserve is the cross. We deserve the righteous wrath of God for our sin and rebellion against him. Yet through faith in Christ, what we receive is not wrath, but salvation. And that is the good news of the gospel. So we have to remember the context of all this is relationships. It's humility. How do you view those around you? As you look at your life, are people more aware of your demands and cravings? What you want for them? Or that you are there to serve them and looking to their interests? Are, you, are, are, you, are people more aware of what you want? Or are you more aware of what others need around you? This is how Jesus lived. This is when we study Christ and look at Christ. This is what should in our hearts be like, I want to be like him. I want to love him. I want to see him. I want to see what he did for me. I want to see the sacrifice he made, the humility he, he had. But I also want to, by faith, be stirred in my heart to follow him, to be like him, to believe that if Christ came and this is how he lived and what he promises is for anyone for, the, for us to find our lives is to lose it. And if a life worth living is in Christ and for Christ and for others, then I'll sign me up and I want to do this. I want to be committed to it. We have to remember when we talk about humility, it's, it's not thinking bad about ourselves. It's not thinking, oh, woe is me. I'm such a horrible person. I'm just a sinner. Who can I help? Who, who, who am I able to help? That's not the humility that Paul's talking about. The humility that Paul's talking about is that we forget about ourselves. It's, it's the gift, it's the joy, it's the privilege, it's the freedom of self-forgetfulness. And when we forget ourselves, what happens? We get to enjoy those around us. We get to enter into the lives and interests and cares and needs of those around us. The wonderful thing about Jesus is that he lost his life for others and he entered into hard places and he brought men, he rose them from the dead and he cared for people and he drew near to people. And what happened? He lived the life of a thousand people because he cared for others. He didn't just care about himself. So for us this morning as a church, we are surrounded by people who we can care for, who we can love, who we can know, whose life we can consider. When was the last time that you sat down with someone and just truly asked them pointed questions and got to know them, to care for them, to look at and consider their interests? This is what Paul is pushing us to, to this humility, to this unity. This is what we need as a church. It's not about us, it's about Christ. So Paul transitions from Christ being the main subject of the action to God in verses 9 through 11. Point two, God raised him high. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. 
So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Christ Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the one who had stooped to the lowest place, God has exalted to the highest. The subject is different now. The subject is not Christ anymore. It is God. It is what God has done. It is what God is doing. God highly exalted him. God is the one who bestowed on him the name above every name. So why does Paul... In his illustration this way, why does the, 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 why does the focus shift? What is he trying to capture here? Is Paul trying to say, well, Jesus did all these things, and so now he's going to be rewarded with God exalting him. So Jesus obeyed, and he lived perfectly, and so God is going to reward him. Here's his reward. Everyone's going to bow to him. And so now for us, it's like, okay, if we want to be exalted, if we want to be like Jesus, if we want God to be happy with us, if we want him to smile upon us, and if we want to be exalted, if we want to, if we want to be in Christ, and what we have to do is we have to be like this, and it's just this burden of, okay, I got to perform, I got to perform, I got to perform. Jesus performed, he did it right, I got to perform, I got to perform. No, it's not what God is doing here. It's not what Paul is doing here. What he is saying is that God, and in Christ being exalted, God was vindicating Christ's work. What, what he's saying is that this is the Messiah. Yes, look at this one. The one who came, the one who died on the cross, the one who was spat upon, the one who everyone was, who rejected him. He is the one. He is mine. He is the one that I sent. He is the Messiah. And so here's how you can know that. I'm going to exalt him. He is going to rise from the dead. He's going to ascend on high. He's going to sit at the right hand of God. And he is going to sit at my right hand and I'm going to send him and he's going to return and all will bow the knee. God is saying that this is the one. Believe in him. He is the Messiah. He is the one that I promised to send. Look to him. Model your life after him. You will not regret living for this one. Because I, just as he was vindicated, you will be vindicated. Your life will be vindicated. You will, not, you will not, at the end of your days, regret giving your life for others. You will regret when your life is all about you. Because when life is all about you, at the end of your life, you're going to be alone. But if you're alone, and you've sacrificed, and you've given... You've given all that you could for the good of others. If you look at your life, if you see that one life will soon be passed, but only what for, is done for Christ will last. If, I, if, if that was your labor. Paul, at the end of his life, was abandoned. He was imprisoned. People abandoned him. He didn't regret any, any of it because he knew there was one coming. He knew there was one coming that was going to vindicate him. There is going to be one that's come and exalt him. Not exalt him in the sense of great as Paul. He's going to say, this is a man who believed in my son. This is the man who trusted in the forgiveness of sins through my son. Not only was Jesus exalted, but God gave him the name above every name. So what is this name? God gives him this name. He gives him the name Lord. He gives him the name Lord. So here's the background to that. In the background of what Paul is saying here is Isaiah 45. In Isaiah 45, 22 through 25, Isaiah writes this, Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me, 
Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance or confess that I am Lord. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. So when Isaiah writes in verse 24, only in the Lord, this is how we translate the divine name of God, Yahweh. The unique name of God. And what Paul is doing here is that part of God vindicating Jesus and giving him this name is he is saying that this, this is God. Paul was a former Jew. He was very aware of what he was doing right now. He had no problem looking at Jesus and saying that this is the Lord. This is the Lord. This is is the one God. This is the one we're going to bow to. This is the one that I know the one who throughout the Old Testament, this is the one that gathered the people of Israel. And now in Christ, it's not just the people of Israel, it's all people. Good news about Jesus is that he came and offered salvation, not just for Israel, but for all. So in Christ, in him, every knee will bow, every tongue confess. Heaven is going to be filled with all nations, all tribes, all languages in him. Every knee will bow to Christ. That means that those who believe and those who do not believe, the wicked will bow the knee. On the earth, under the earth, all will bow to Christ who is the Lord. And that is the hope that we have. This is the empowering example. This is the hope that we have. This is the glory of Christ's humility. And what I love about how Paul ends this is that the and, and rightly so. It says in verse 11 that every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus doesn't care to transfer the glory to God the Father. He don't want the attention to himself. He said, this is what I've done. And all these days, we're going to glorify God the Father. We're going to worship him. We're going to see that he was all part of this plan and that he was enacting it and making it happen. And our lives can be richly devoted to this God. And we can glory in Christ's humility and be empowered by it to follow his example. Amen? So in a moment, I'm going to pray for us. The band, you can go ahead and come up and we're going to make your way to the stage. We're, we're going to have a time of ministry that we set aside the second Sunday of each month. And this is not the only time we believe the Lord ministers to us as a church, but we do want to take time in response to the preaching of God's word and consideration of all that we face as a church to come and receive prayer, to come and receive encouragement through the gift of prophecy, to come and be ministered to not only by the people who are present, but also what we believe is ministered to by the Holy Spirit. And so I would invite you, what a wonderful opportunity to humble ourselves this morning and to ask for help, maybe with relationships. Maybe you are struggling right now in relationships. Maybe you're convicted this morning and you're just aware of just how selfish you have been. Be the Lord would invite you to come and receive prayer and humble yourself and receive forgiveness. If you are hurting this morning, if you have pain, if you need prayer for healing, maybe, maybe your knee, maybe you have a knee this morning that is hurting, you need prayer for, come and receive prayer for healing. We'll have the pastors here. We'll have members that we have trained and equipped to pray for you and encourage you. So let me pray for us. And then as, as we sing, please come and be prayed for. So Heavenly Father, I thank you that you You are holy and majestic and powerful and we worship you this morning. Thank you, Lord, that this 
that, you, that we have this truth in our Bibles that you have given us not only this example Christ, but you've given us you. We receive you. So help us, Lord, to live this way. Protect this church. Keep us unified through our humility and loving one another. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message given by Jake Simmons during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.